Hey friends, it's Anna recording after the fact because in the course of recording this very excellent interview that you're about to hear, my audacity ate the first five or so minutes of my track. So I'm going to re-record the introduction. You know, audacity is a free program and sometimes you get what you paid for, but no shade. Audacity is great. And so this is an interview with Danielle Cabela, the first of our 2022 Pass the Mic grant recipients, travel grant recipients. So they are a biomedical anthropology focused researcher who works closely with communities in New Mexico uh, that are affected by drug use and sort of re-examines the social interactions around drug abuse and addiction. And it was a really, really awesome interview. And um, they're doing amazing work. And we're so glad that we were able to help them travel to the AAAs in Seattle, where we met them in person. It was really cool. Um, And so thank you again to everyone who is supporting us in all of the ways that you can support us by telling your friends about us, by reaching out to us and telling us about your love of anthropology and your success stories. Uh, We got a really, really lovely email this morning um, that made Amber cry and almost made me cry, which is really saying something uh, because I love to bury my feelings. Um, But a really lovely email from someone who has been listening uh, since the beginning and is going on to do some really awesome field work Uh, that's so great. We're so happy about that. And I also wanted to pass along from Amber some thank yous for all of the love that you showed her on social media um, about her acceptance into grad school. Insert air horns, sound drop. Note to self, find an air horn sound drop. But yes, Amber's going to grad school Uh, In about a month, I will be moving halfway across the country to be in the same city as Amber. What? Incredible. So we got a lot of stuff going on at The Dirt. Uh, A little bit more housekeeping. Patreon is currently paused. We are in the process of switching over to Ghost. So your Patreon should still be accessible to you if you are a Patreon supporter. Thank you very much. This should mean little to no change for you. All the back catalog should be accessible and will continue to be accessible once we switch over to Ghost. Um, And yeah, uh, until that happens, you can keep supporting the show by uh, commissioning sponsored episodes. I guess that would be sponsoring episodes. And you can tell friends about us. You can please, please, please leave us reviews. Um, The recent uh, little piece that I wrote and read as as a kind of bonus dirt episode. Um, I think it may have <laughs> flagged uh, our show for some uh, stands of a certain British uh, ancient apocalypse journalist. Um, and so we started getting some kind of nasty emails and some bad reviews. So if you enjoy the show and enjoy what we do and want to support responsibly researched outreach about people in the past, then please take a second and leave us five stars and preferably also a few nice words on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen and are able to leave reviews. 
Uh, and then lastly, um, speaking of Patreon, we have one new patron from the past uh, week or two. Sorry, we're late on that. Uh, to say thank you to, and that's Betsy. So thank you, Betsy, for joining us, and we hope you enjoy the bonus content. Okay, so here we go. Here's the the intro to the dirt. Hello, and welcome to the dirt. And we are interviewing Danielle Cabela. They are a phenomenal researcher doing really great things. And the first interview question, I'm pretty sure I asked, and so Audacity ate that too, is our usual first question. What was your trajectory to anthropology and how did you get to the research you're doing now? Okay, so we'll do the theme song and then hop right in where Audacity let me start. Okay, thanks everybody. Love you. Bye. Uh, hello. First of all, uh, thank you so much for having me on your podcast, as well as for the financial support uh, that came from the scholarship to present my research at last year's Triple A's. Um, Where we met you. Yes. yes. Briefly. <laughs> right. You came by the booth. <laughs> at the yeah. booth. That's right. It was a really great yeah. booth. <laughs> Um, Thank you. And I happen to really enjoy your content. Uh, so I, ah. it's such an honor uh, to be a guest on this podcast. Um, and uh, so, yeah, my name is uh, Danielle Cabela. I'm uh, from New Mexico. Um, I'm a PhD candidate in uh, Human and Social Dimensions of Science and Technology at Arizona State uh, University's School for the Future of Innovation and Society. And I have a, a BA and an MA in Anthropology from the University of New Mexico. Uh, my research interests lie at the intersections of medical anthropology, social studies of science and technology, and biomedicine. Oh my goodness! Put all that on a business card. <laughs> so many modifiers. <laughs> no, this is yeah. Well, it's, uh, this it's is the future. Fantastic. The, <laughs> yeah. The key. Yeah. The future. <laughs> um, yeah. So let's let's uh, kind of break that down a little bit and talk about how you came to anthropology and then sort of beyond that, how you came to your current um, specialization. Especially, yeah, because yeah, this sounds like a very specialized specialty. Mm. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, we're going to take some, we're going to really, we're going to get into the, the work that you shared at the uh, the AAA uh, this past annual meeting. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I'm really I'm curious to hear yeah. how you how you how you found yourself uh, here on on the 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 very edge of your PhD, which congratulations for. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. Well, that's a that's a great question, um, and I think because it it gets at what it means to do the kind of work that has stakes for anthropologists in our communities, uh, which matters to to the discipline of anthropology as well as uh, science and technology studies, because it's. It's more than a detached theoretical debate about representation and authority. And that's because my work is part of a, a broader decolonial approach um, that uh, 
uh, troubles questions around uh, the researcher and participant relationship, uh, what counts as evidence, uh, where the field begins and ends, and what and mm. for whom ethnography is. Um, so with that, I, you know, I started my academic career at a community college in, in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And it was there that I took my first anthropology class, uh, Cultures of the World. And it was, uh, mm-hmm. I was introduced to the ethnography in search of respect, uh, selling crack in El Barrio by the anthropologist Philippe Bergois. And I was just blown away by the way he used ethnography to illuminate the lived experiences of drug use uh, that offered a more like complex uh, understanding um, that drew on, you know, political economy and critical theories of race and diaspora, um, which challenged my ideas about drug use um, being a moral failing. And uh, mm. that really resonated with me uh, because I'm in, embedded in, um, you know, a community who's been devastated by heroin and other drugs. And for the first time, I'm reading a book that offers a, a radically new understanding uh, that draws attention to humanity of those uh, who live on um, the margins of society. You know, so I began to think to myself, can, you know, can people uh, make careers out of this kind of, this kind of research and, you know, um, this kind of writing? Uh, and you know how you know how can they do this? And um, can, we, can we have the title of that book one more time? Title and author. Yeah, so it's In Search of Respect: Selling Crack in El Barrio, and mm-hmm. it's Philippe Bergois, who's a okay. who's an anthropologist. Um, yeah, and there's like a small yeah. well, niche. We'll include that in the show notes for folks. Drug like drug ethnographies. In in, mm-hmm. in in cultural anthropology or social anthropology as well as medical anthropology, they kind of cross. Um, and there's there's several that I can also talk about later. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, and so was that just the first time that you encountered um, ethnic? Was well, this the first like you know the first time you encountered ethnography? Uh, was this the first time you ca- encountered um, ethnographic sort of treatment of? Um, of drug use and and those who who use drugs um and is this exceptional or is it the rule like when you talk about there are other ethnographies of of drug use is that something that um is it typical to um afford humanity to to folks that are uh you know the the observed in, in these these contexts or sort of well, where suspicion, I know <laughs> well I don't know like maybe this is something that there was just a silence like they were never um, they were they were never seen as uh, worthy ethnographic subjects until they were you know afforded some humanity mm-hmm. um, I don't know I'm willing to learn I don't know anything about this so I, I'm trying to come in with like an open heart uh, so could you could you kind of take a step back and um, and, and kind of clarify that. Yeah. Because, uh, again, I have minimal experience with, now that I'm starting to realize that I, like, need to know about it uh-huh. for my own work, okay. uh, minimal experience with ethnography. And um, and so I think our listeners also might, um, who, who mostly study folks who you can't directly observe because they're not there anymore. Um, right. Like, just sort of, like, you know, living interlocutors are uh, new to me. Right. Oh, great. <laughs> uh, 
welcome back to the living. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, so um, ethnography is a, a set of, of methods that um, you know cultural anthropologists will use uh, uh, to go out into the field, uh, so to speak, and um, uh, identify a, a community um, that traditionally was often thought of as like foreign to them. <laughs> so they would, mm-hmm. you know, uh, they would go off into a, a foreign. <laughs> Um, usually overseas, learn a new language and, and immerse themselves into the culture and, and um, um, you know, write field notes and do interviews and they would, they would um, surface this data and, and analyze, uh, um, uh, analyze it in, in terms of, you know, anthropological theory and, and things like that. And, and part of the uh, um, critique was that, you know, this kind of anthropology was used, uh, you know, for, for, uh, like empire and development. It was, it was very colonial mm-hmm. because they, 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 um, structured these ethnographies as if they're like total fact, you know, like this is how the culture is. And, and, and they are kind of part of these repositories. This is like a, like and, a manual. Yeah. Right. Like here's yeah, a handbook how, yeah. on like how to engage with, <laughs> Or yeah, how to understand how and and the experts. yeah right. well and so like to understand with the objective of like to be able to better rule over or you know maybe trying to think of it in like a softer term mm-hmm. that kind of no you're that's, just that's exactly to, like to understand like and control and the, discipline yeah. um, uh, over and uh, so. Um, so having drug ethnographies based in like North America or the U.S. was kind of novel. One because it's within the same, it's when in the same culture, so to speak. Ah, and yeah, okay. uh, um, drug ethnographies kind of came out of, I believe, like the nineteen seventies, nineteen eighties, with uh, uh, Michael Agar ripping and running it was one of the first like urban drug ethnographies, and um, and. Uh, so Philippe Bourgeois is kind of a, a, a you know, an, an out, an outcome of that, you know, a, a, okay. it's a genealogy of that. Um, yeah. and, uh, so, so yeah, so I guess this was my first interaction with, uh, ethnography. You know, there was other, we had a, we got to choose from in the class, we got to choose from, um, you know, ethno- ethnographic like snippets. I don't even think we read the whole book. It was just like chapters or something right. from ethnographies to kind of learn about what ethnography is and what you do as a as um, the scholar. And um, and so I chose you know that one because I was interested in the way I was interested in, in substance use and um, and again I was just uh, uh, you know taken back by the way it was uh, presented outside of. Um, uh, like medical terms, right. And, and moving away from like drug use as, as a, as a moral failing. And, and there was just more yeah. complexity to it, um, that I was interested in, in, in reading more about and in writing about and, and, but still there was questions that lingered for me, right. That, you know, between again, the researcher and, um, and the interlocutor, right. That there's still this, this power dynamic or this, this, it, this, um, uh, subject, uh, you know, um, you know, researcher in like this process of like othering. <laughs> and so a lot yeah. of those ethnographies still were, um, very much focused on like social suffering and, uh, 
uh, like pathologizing, even though it was, it was, it was talking about, um, you know, the, you know, the structures rather than the body, it still kind of, you know, pathologized, uh, the, the interlocutors and, and the people they were trying to study, um, uh, without kind of giving them agency. <laughs> so I think for me, I, I wanted to, you know, pursue this line of research and I was, you know, curious to think how about how to do that as, as someone who, you know, doesn't use drugs, but who's been around, um, substance use, uh, in my family and my communities. And what would that look like if, if I was, um, the researcher, uh, um, that is also, uh, somewhat who could be the researched in some way. Right. Um, so that's, yeah. <laughs> that's really, uh, that's really profound. Uh, that's just something that um, I just wonder. I, I, I'm glad that that was something that was available to you, uh, sort of on the syllabus. But I just think about like, had you started with the the sorts of like the ethnographies that are usually assigned, and you know, your first year, cl- like I, I wonder if you would have like made it <laughs> through those. Um, <laughs> but but also, um, but also, I think you really highlight a. Um, I, I think you you throw some light on a, a, a really compelling um, distinction there or sort of a phenomenon there of um, these anthropologists were sort of taking the same tools um, like to a different like, you know, they, they, they learned they got their tools from the same hardware store kind of thing. And yeah. so they're going <laughs> to like a new site and, and using them um, and uh, uh, yeah, and so I—it's really interesting to hear you not saying like I want to do that, but rather like, well, what would it? How how would it be if I did it? Um, kind of thing. Because would you have to unlearn some of the humanity of the folks you know in your family in your community, or just like would you have to compartmentalize certain things that are innate to you, just sort of from um, from sort of knowing them as as full people and mm-hmm. sort of having that that kind of implicit understanding of structures and things uh, like to in, in service of gaining this kind of pathologizing yeah it's, um, it's wild approaches. That we're, we're thinking that like as anthropologists asking ourselves about our subjects like oh do we view them as people like do we do that should we do that am i doing that Am and, I doing so, too much? Yeah. Like, is that, and so, yeah. yeah. And so, like, in, in asking the question, like, who is this for? I, it is my impression that most studies that I've sort of come across, like ethnographies, who is this for? The answer, like, the, the community doesn't necessarily, isn't necessarily who it is for, but also the, the person asking who is this for isn't necessarily part of that community. And so it's saying, like, who is this for? Oh, other anthropologists. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. Should it be, though? <laughs> if that. If that, yeah. Well, okay, so this was, like, you know, day one of you being an anthropologist. Yeah, right. <laughs> So I will let you just, but it's light, just, but it's a just, light breezy day. Right. But I am, I'm always really fascinated by how people sort of first encounter it mm-hmm. and, and how it is it 
um, always or even often a like, this is what I want to be when I grow up kind of sort of right. uh, moment of revelation. It's something a bit stickier. Yeah. And I mean, going back to community, you know, being a person of the community, studying within the community, you know, this, it was, it was also, anthropology was also somewhat foreign to me or, you know, conceiving of this kind of career, you know, I, I come from a very rural place in New Mexico, um, uh, called Chilili. And, uh, you know, our school was an hour bus ride <laughs> each way. Um, and so the, the communities kind of filled these, these positions to bus kids to school to work, you know, as teaching assistants, you know, school nurses. Um, so everyone knew everyone in every sector that structured like your day. <laughs> my best friend's yeah. mom was a bus driver, you know, Ruby, our family friend was a nurse. My aunt was a detention lady. So making a career outside <laughs> of this, especially in anthropology, um, I was really, was really foreign to me and, and, you know, to my family. Um, so that, you know, that book was very, uh, uh, transformative in that way. So, mm. you know, I, I wanted, I wanted to carve out a career or at least explore it like more seriously, like, yeah. could I do this? You know? So then I, I started taking, uh, more anthropology classes and, um, you know, I, I decided it for my major, uh, when I transferred to the university, uh, and that's where I met my, my mentor, you know, the, the amazing Dr. Lindsay Smith, who I owe, um, so much to for essentially taking me under her wing and, and shaping me as a scholar. Um, and at that time, she was she was just hired on as junior faculty uh, with a PhD from Harvard Social Anthropology Program with a focus on medicine. Um, so she worked with like Arthur Kleeman and, and um, uh, took classes and training with Paul Farmer, who hold like joint appointments in, in anthropology and like are also MDs. And um, which is perfect because I was super motivated. Um, in, in doing, uh, uh, you know, clinical kind of, uh, assessments of, of drugs. And, and, um, so I, I learned a lot from our classes. Uh, um, and by the end of my senior year, I was awarded a, a fellowship through the Ronald E. McNair scholars program, which was a program that was designed to prepare, you know, first generation, uh, undergraduate students from like low income or underrepresented, um, backgrounds for doctoral studies. So it gave me yeah. the opportunity to work very closely with, with Dr. Smith, um, as my mentor to, you know, do my own research project. And, you know, this would be the first time that I actually got to align my academic and personal interests. Um, and, uh, I was able to work with a group of, of curanderas or, or traditional healers, doctors and patients at a multi-modality opioid recovery program as part of my ethnographic oh, wow. research. Um, and it became very foundational, uh, to the work, uh, for my doctoral studies today. Um, and, uh, and was this as, was this when you were, it was like a so, senior capstone or was this your, this was when you were an undergrad? This is undergrad. Yeah. So I, so oh my was, God. we got, yeah. Wow. <laughs> I mean, I was already, you know, blown away by the McNair scholarship because yeah. that is a very, very prestigious, um, and, and, uh, competitive, uh, fellowship. So congrats. <laughs> Thank you. And, um, <laughs> and I owe the extra, like, you're going to do your own research project to my, you know, advisor. Yeah. He's like, I want you to see what it's like to, to do right. a PhD, you know, like, you know, and this is what you would do. Would do that it. more <laughs> advisors did that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So she had Truly. me like, do all the steps, you know, interviews. Yeah. Um, so it, and it, Amazing. Uh, it was, 
you know, it was really helpful. Um, and, uh, so, uh, you know, then I, um, I also got my master's on anthropology, uh, through UNM, uh, mm-hmm. uh, University of New Mexico. And, um, and I did some doctoral training too, actually at, at uh, UNM, uh, but I transferred, uh, to ASU, uh, with, with Dr. Smith. <laughs> She's been my okay. runner die since day one. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and I finished my, you know, I'm finishing now my doctoral education in, in this program that I'm in now, um, which has been great because I've been able to bring anthropology to the program, which, which, um, you know, STS is, it's a transdisciplinary, uh, approach that recognizes that science, medicine, and technology, you know, can't stand outside the social and political context in which they are embedded. Um, so for me, that meant aligning, you what? know, this ethnographic practice on drug recovery and addiction medicine with, you know, the social studies of, of science and technology. Um, and yeah. we're at a time right now where that's actually gaining a lot of popularity. Um, you know, anthropologists are very interested in like laboratory studies doing, you know, ethnography and, in, in, in new ways. So it, it, um, it kind of worked out, uh, really well <laughs> to have this like extra, extra training. <laughs> that's yeah. Um, yeah. What a path. The, the power yeah, of the mentor. Like, Really. <laughs> yeah. Um, but also like, um, uh, good on you for sort of, um, Oh yeah. Not to diminish your no, work. No, 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 no. But like good on you for noticing that kind of like that spark, like with that first, that, that, you know, like the sort and pursuing that mm-hmm. of just like, what, what does this, what does this mean? Like, this is, this is striking at something for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, let's, let's explore it. Um, wow. That's, um, so has your research, um, so the research that you did as an undergraduate, um, that sort of set you up, uh, in terms of sort of the kind of the soft skills of, of doing, of doing research and things, but has it, um, has it been a continuous line, um, sort of in terms of the work that you're doing from that undergraduate research project to, um, what the dissertation you're polishing off now, or has it taken you in sort of unexpected directions? Um, or like, has it been a climb, like a, a slow, like steady climb, or has it been a bit, uh, is, is there a bit more topography to that? <laughs> yeah, no, that's <laughs> that the GIS map of right. your... <laughs> <laughs> a great question and actually speaking of mass my, my dissertation is um recovery futures mapping the socio-technical uh, uh landscape of uh drug recovery and addiction science in new mexico <laughs> so it very much is a map <laughs> um yeah and i uh, <laughs> oh, and my first you know uh, ethnographic study does make an appearance in that as being you know i i, I uh my work really focuses on making visible uh, place-based recovery futures. Um, so ethnographically that's, you know, my work has brought me to, you know, the clinic I, I described and, uh, uh, neuroscience labs, the archives, outreach spaces, and other institutions of recovery, drug recovery and drug, um, I guess drug exposure science. Um, so those are the places when you say place-based, do you mean New Mexico? Do you mean, this question. Uh, waiting room? Do you <laughs> yeah, mean the, like the institutions? So both. Yeah. So, so yeah. And I think that's a great question because it gets at 
you know, the, the, um, I guess the, uh, the ten, one of the tenets of my, of my dissertation, right. Is that, uh, you know, I, I found that in these spaces, um, you know, people fill up these spaces and they're also, the same people are also embedded in local kinship networks, local communities and professional communities that are tied to a particular place. And that place is New Mexico. Um, okay. so it is both space and place. And, and, okay. uh, so, you know, the place from which we begin to address recovery from matters and, and the people in those spaces also matter. Um, okay. and, Drug Recovery Futures not only helps us understand relationships between people and place um, and the active roles, you know, individuals and groups and social structures play in creating, you know, these, these places in which they live and heal in contemporary society. Um, it also helps us to conceive of a future for, like, liberatory health um, yeah. by attending to the ways in which, you know, place, knowledge, and subjectivities are produced um, through these, you know, social or political practices, um, which kind of allude to, you know, they offer new ways, uh, people engage with, with place and each other, um, that are multiple and diverse or alternative. So let me give you a concrete example. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I just, yeah, I think that this is, um, cause, um, I think that some of the stuff that you're talking about is going to be new for some folks. Mm -hmm. Uh, And like, it's new for me. (laughs) And like, Anna, you can edit this out, but like, you're doing a really great job of explaining it and like not, and like striking that balance between like, it's also yeah, a great yeah. practice and for my my defense. In yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'll just send him this podcast. How about that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm like pretty new to I'm like I'm pretty new to SDS, even though I'm joining like a, a like a more SDS department oh, soon. Cool. And yeah. so I'm just like, this is really great for me because I spend a lot of time being like. Ah, and like Googling just on the you side, so it's this. really great to like have a human being to talk to about it. Well, um, yeah, so sorry. Sorry for that, that sidebar, but I just wanted to kinda... Yeah. Um, well, I mean, there is an intersection, that, you know, between STS and uh, archaeology, you know, that, that people have taken, you know, after network theory and those things. I've, I've convinced them of that. So that's... <laughs> um, yeah, so... Uh, so one example that, you know, that might incorporate anthropology and STS, you know, focuses um, more so on, on people and place through the lens of, of technology then. Um, okay. So uh, just some context, you know, in, in uh, May of, of, of 2021, you know, it was reported that like almost 10,000 overdose deaths were attributed to mostly opioids, uh, which is the largest recorded overdose death in, in history. And I'm sure you can um, guess what some of the uh, drivers were, you know, pandemic, mm-hmm. uh, economic mm-hmm. recession and social isolation, as well as a, you know, polluted uh, supply of synthetic drugs, like unregulated yeah. counterfeit fentanyl. Um, uh but, you know, it wasn't the only problem. And um, the U.S. had started taking on more seriously this idea of harm reduction and, and channeling the, these efforts uh, to include overdose prevention strategies, like the distribution of um, a life-saving drug capable of reviving someone from a fatal overdose, which is called naloxone, or Narcan is the 
um, mm. the brand name, which actually just got FDA approval this month, <laughs> um, to be yeah. over the counter, which is huge um, in drug policy. And so. I carry Narcan with me. Oh, great. <laughs> um, and it's it's great to, um, if you can, um, often like health departments and places you can reach out to. Uh, there will be places that distribute it. So listeners, um, it never hurts to have, have Narcan. It's very easy. Well, it's not very, it's relatively easy to access Narcan tr- administration training. It's not anything that involves like having to, jab anybody with anything or anything like that um but it truly can save someone's life um and yeah um, like if you would consider um cpr training it's much the same and it's easier in the same like yeah you don't break (laughs) anyone's sternum accidentally (laughs) with administering narcan but it is something that um truly can if and and this is something that um, so this is just coming from from my background, being from um, West Virginia, mm-hmm. um, and and so I attended a harm reduction training. And this is a way that you can truly be a good neighbor um, if if you if you or anyone in your household uses, or anyone you know, and even if you don't know, because it's something that um, you can just sort of have it in your bag. It weighs next to nothing, um, and. Um, it's something that, um, could like truly does save someone's life and it's none of your business what led them to the point where they need it. Um, but you can just be a good neighbor and, and like genuinely save someone's life. And, uh, so that's my, my, my little plug for, <laughs> for, for Narcan there. Um, cause it is, it is something that is accessible and um, the more people who access it and make use of it and make it available to others, the less stig- the yeah normalize it. The the less stigma stigmatization there can be because it's something that again not a moral failing. And there are lots of reasons uh, why someone may be in that position that have nothing to do with um, you know habitual drug usage or anything like that. It's something that um, those sorts of drugs are very. Um, like powerful and tricky and people's bodies um, can be wonky and it's just a good thing to have. Yeah, that was a great explanation. (laughs) (laughs) And I wanted to pull out something that's important here is, you know, you said to normalize it. And part of that is, is socializing, you know, people to overdose as well as this technology. Right. And, and so part of, STS is, is, is recognizing these, these social dimensions of technology. Um, okay. And uh, so, you know, I, I, in this particular case study, I, I study, you know, the ways in which medical technologies do more than just the bare, bare life, right? Just saving lives. Um, but they operate yeah. beyond life. Um, and what I argue is, is doing the work to repair the so- social fabric and that putting these mm-hmm. technology in the hands of, of everyday people brings p- people closer together rather than alienating them from each other, right? If you think about it, like you said, um, administering Narcan is relational, right? You, it, when yeah. an overdose happens, it prompts another human being to respond, right? So you're already yeah. creating a relationship um, between the drug user and, and someone who's who's uh, rescuing, 
uh, the drug user. And, and if we put that into context of our drug policy, um, you know, over the last 50 years, it's, it's been very punitive, right? To isolate, yeah. to incarcerate, yeah. um, and, uh, remove, uh, people who use drugs, um, from society in yeah. these ways. So the technology itself is designed so that it, it, at least right now, right. It, um, you have to be administered by the person, um, uh, other than the person receiving it, it's, it's yeah. designed in such a way that it brings people closer together. And not just in that specific instance, it also, you know, the fact of just you carrying it, right. Is, is you have con- consciousness of, of, well, I have to be near, you know, somebody maybe that you care about or, or, um, just people on the street that you've asked might have to pass by. You have to be cognizant of, of where they are. And that challenge is very much so than being like, you know, don't, you know, I, I think a lot of our, our drug education, you know, dare <laughs> and those kind of things, right. just say no, or just, you know, um, don't be around people who use drugs or, you know, these things It it, it really challenges us to, um, uh, uh, to rethink, uh, how we care for people, um, uh, who, who use drugs and, and who are in these situations. So that, that's one way to analyze, you know, social life is through the actual design of the materiality of the technology. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's, that makes perfect sense to me. Uh, and I've never, I've never thought about it that way. And so just thinking about, um, the experience of doing that harm reduction training, I did it at, um, the Appalachian Queer Youth Summit. And so, uh, that in hindsight, we had way too many heavy things in one weekend <laughs> for <Right>. these kids. <laughs> um, but but we were. But what it did was uh, through that training, it was um, it, we we became closer to one another. We we understood more about individual traumas. Um, some some of those kids have lost parents or other family members, or if not lost them, had their relationships. Uh, fundamentally altered mm-hmm. uh, following um, an overdose event or, you know, drug usage or something. And so that sort of, um, there, there is a social component that is just strictly through, you know, somebody like showing up and, you know, doing a demonstration and right. kind of doing the, the exercises and stuff. And so it is something that um, I think I will now think about this a little bit differently when I walk down the street to catch the bus um, and, and uh, kind of consciously in a way that, that I hadn't before. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's a really, that's, that's a really helpful example and sort of understanding like technology in place and uh-huh, things like that, because yeah. those are very like abstract terms uh-huh. that um, sort of make me think of like dense poorly translated from the French kind of mm-hmm. social theory and, and not, um, and not so much like our lives. Like things. immediately so, applicable to me, a human being yeah, right. existing in my environment. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, no, you're right on, uh, with that in, in grounding it in you know, in New Mexico, you know, bringing it back yeah. to actually the place, you know, New Mexico was, uh, the first state, uh, to sanction it legally, um, to be take home to for it to be uh, taken home by by lay people. Before that, it was you know it, it uh, existed, but it existed in emergency rooms and with like yeah. paramedics and things like that. So you had to call someone to come and revive, um, you know, a professional. And uh, New Mexico was the yeah. first state to to sanction it. Uh, I think in two thousand one. Um, before that, 
you know, there was a long history of naloxone. Before that, it was it was distributed, you know, um, kind of clandestinely or illegally. Um, and a lot of harm reductionists, like Dan Briggs, out of uh, um, the Chicago Recovery Alliance, really innovated that kind of stuff. So when I, I mentioned earlier, preface with you know it being now approved by the FDA to uh, to be over the counter, like that's that's yeah. we can owe that back that's, to the yeah. the. the um, the brave harm reductionists who, who were out on the streets and, and was, um, kind of emancipating thinking, this technology from medicine and giving it to the people. Yeah. <laughs> so was the thinking before that, like, if you make it available, it'll encourage drug use or something. Was that, cause I'm, I'm just I trying think, to think of yeah, what a reason like an could easy be. fix or something. Right. Like that's how it, right. yeah. Like as if that were the case, no, I like, which I know that like, it is something that, um, like, is that what, or was it like because of the, like, I mean, like, I, I, well, yeah, I just like thinking about think, that, yeah, but also, I, I think we, you, you know, know, it's like such a, an, like an American response, you know, prohibition has always been, you know, <laughs> right. Um, just say no to drugs. So, yeah, I think, and it's yeah. still, you know, I, I, I work in, outreach spaces too, where I, I, you know, distribute Narcan and, and even the people who are asking for the Narcan that are, that are using, or, you know, isn't this just encouraging my drug use, you know? And, and, um, and so, you know, we're all indoctrinated by this idea that, you know, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, these things that actually save that your lives that you're going to, you know, it's that, yeah, that uh, it, it encourages you to do something bad. Yeah. Right. Like to yeah, be, deviant. yeah. To like do, <laughs> do evil. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and also I could, um, and the other thing that is, is worth mentioning about that the structure in which you would have to call someone or take them to the emergency room, there are people like there's usually a cost, almost always a yeah. cost associated <laughs> with that, um, depending on the situation um, that could put someone in danger of um, arrest or incarceration, mm-hmm. could put somebody in danger of um, if they are an undocumented individual, mm-hmm. that could put just their existence uh, in danger. And so there are a lot of like structures of power that can be sort of weaponized against them at the point of, so sort of like, well, do I, uh, do I do something that may save this person's life if it means ruining their life mm-hmm. uh it's just sort of like the, the that sort of calculus that it forces someone to do in a really heightened state of um of emotion and trauma um and um and so that that's something that there are all these layers that get put onto it mm-hmm. when it's so heavily sort of uh, restricted mm-hmm. and I, you know in the recovery discourse is you know you can't recover someone who's dead, you know, so you, right. Yeah. There's, there's that component and, and, you know, not to, there's been a, a, the conversation has uh, extended beyond recovery, right. That the harm reduction is also recognizing that um, people, uh, you know, whatever their goals are (laughs) to, Mm -hmm. to use or not to use, like these resources should be available. And, um, and, uh, so they, so you know, this technology operates in, in multiple spaces, in recovery spaces, and in, in, in um, you know street-based outreach, outreach, where uh, people go out to um, you know the parks or homeless encampments and, and hand this out, um, and uh, and and all of them require a level of, of uh, social networks and and. Um, 
relationship building and rapport and those things. And, and that's to say that the technology itself, like, isn't what's fixing, <laughs> you know, it, it's technology so long that it's in step with like social justice is, is, is helpful. <laughs> um, yeah. But it's not the technology itself that, that does it. It's right. the, the human, the human, no, it is human. Uh, the human actor using yeah. that tool, um, which I think is something that, which might also be in a very American thing to sort of forget that, because you know, you know, like tech won't save us. Right, like it's right. like that's you know we're not gonna, you know, uh, design an app to get us out of uh, also, alienation. It's like, it's like a weird echo of the like guns don't kill people, people right. kill people. It's well, and you know, I, the human needs to go back into the equation. Yes, you know, and, and there's, you know, we're now that it's FDA approved. You know, there's. You know, we have to think about to where we draw the line of innovation, right? Like, if it's what if they come out with a product now that you don't need the, you know, you get a patch or something that that reads your your heart rate or something, recognizes that you're going into an overdose, and it just completely takes out the human, you know. So we also so technology can also be um, ineffective, you know, in in that way too. Uh, so it, so it's always being critical too about you know the technology and and. Um, again, goes back to my essential uh, point that, you know, people and place and technology together matter. So, yeah. 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 And so um, how did the, how does that come together? So really appreciate that, that concrete example to kind of provide a primer to the whole thing for us. <laughs> um, but how does that come together in your, in your research? Like, what does that, um, because now that you're finishing your dissertation. Um, <laughs> so how does that, yeah, what, is, um, what, what, what does that look like? like? Yeah. Um, yeah, both in, t- I, I, both in terms of like, what does it like now, a day is probably writing, uh, but what does like doing this research look like and how does it come together as a, uh, as a study, like as a, as a, as a work mm-hmm. of, of text right. of, of like discourse. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I think that, you know, the way my study is designed is, you know, it doesn't focus on one clinical space or, or, um, one case study. It's multiple, right? So it's, it's kind of to draw a through line of these patterns, um, mm. to highlight, you know, uh, these places of, of recovery future. And, and are you looking for commonalities among them or are you looking for points of divergence or are they equally important? Mm-hmm. Because it's not, cause you're also like what you were talking about sort of in your, uh, your undergraduate work of kind of the multimodal mm-hmm. uh, sort of um, like that. It's more than just a clinical setting. Mm-hmm. Um, so are, is that what your, are you looking for like what's working? Are you looking for what this could mean for the future? Mm-hmm. Like what is like? Are you looking at present, or are you looking looking for the future? Right. And I, I'm sorry, I'm asking you so many questions, and that not is giving nine a questions. Answer <laughs> <laughs> uh, them in whatever order you like. But but yeah. So like, what is it? Uh, what does it look like? What does it mean to um, speak to? recovery futures. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think it incorporates 
all temporalities, you know, past, present and future. And that, you know, like I was saying, you know, the, the, for example, naloxone has a very long history. Um, and, uh, and we can say the same about the other technologies that exist in my, my dissertation, you know, methadone, um, as well as buprenorphine, uh, that are used to treat, uh, heroin addiction. And, um, I study them from a place of, of, I guess, like giving agency to people who are impacted by drug harms, um, you know, directly or indirectly, maybe through family or friends or health advocates, um, in ways that they've used alternative strategies or, or strategies, uh, that keeps people alive and safe from harm. <laughs> so by looking at, I look at the last 50 years, um, of this innovation in New Mexico. And I do 50 years because, uh, um, methadone was first introduced into, into New Mexico in the, in the sixties, which, which actually, uh, was initiated by, um, by lay people. It, it kind of came out of the Chicano movement. Um, and it was a, a group of people that had experiences with the substance use and, and also, um, uh, the police being arrested for, for, uh, you know, trafficking very, very small amounts mm -hmm. of heroin. And they were trying to come up with a solution, um, to like take care of themselves that in these spaces where they were being abandoned or, or by healthcare mm -hmm. or being targeted by police. Um, and they, and they, um, you know, work together strategically with the medical school and, uh, and other like experts, but really they were the ones that kind of controlled this, this, um, uh, heroin recovery, uh, treatment center. And so what I'm trying to do is like, by looking at that past, looking at, you know, where these technologies and these models emerge, you know, in the historical context to kind of as a window to think about how their legacies like mm -hmm. live on through the future. So like, yeah, you know, this innovation that I had talked about in, in uh, 2001 with naloxone being first sanctioned in New Mexico, I argue that wouldn't have happened if, you know, there already wasn't in the 1960s, a group of Chicano activists uh, advocating for methadone to be um, uh, used in, you know, in their terms. Um, yeah. So, so looking at the past kind of projects like a, f a future and a recovery future okay. isn't so much like recovering and being, you know, um, free of substances. It's, it's, it's other components right. of it too, right? These multi-modality, um, uh, structural, you know, structural, uh, right. It had a, you know, an economic component to it as well. You know, the 1960s, um, Recovery Center also taught Chicano history, you know, so it had like a much larger so it's like, it's, approach. It's, it's more like recovery as a, as a, um, entry point for liberation rather yes. than just being drug free. Yes. Kind of thing. Like that it's, that, it's, kind of that they, you know, it's sort of giving one agency in their, in their life rather than being sort of, um, subject to, um, carceral systems mm -hmm. or medical systems or things like that. And, um, yeah, I, that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. yeah. 
And so, so sort of starting there, um, and what, so you say, you know, 50 years, but, um, were there things before that in the realm of, 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 uh, sort of, of recovery or harm reduction or, or Uh anything like that? Or was this sort of like a watershed moment that Mm -hmm. you use as sort of the, the the rock? And I'm sure, yeah. (laughs) On which you, right. And. It's probably like the limitations to reach. I'm sure there was people advocating, <laughs> you know, for their own right. health in those spaces. Um, yeah. This this seems to be the moment where, you know, heroin um, comes, uh, is, is prevalent in New Mexico. Um, you know, after the Korean War in the 50, you know, 50s, uh, soldiers start coming back. Mm. And then you have Vietnam, um, uh, you know, soldiers are getting addicted and coming back. And, uh, so there's a lot of, you know, heroin use, um, going on in, in New Mexico. And, you know, at that time, the people that were being recruited for these wars were mostly like, uh, Chicano, Chicano men. Um, so it was very, uh, and this is what they called themselves at at that time. You know, the identities have changed since then in New Mexico and and other places. But at that time, you know, um, this group of, uh, people that comes comes from the Chicano movement and they're they're recognizing their oppression um you know uh while also trying to like save their li- save each other and save their lives and and, and creating a discourse yeah. around there's heroin here and what do we do you know um so uh so yeah so that's kind of why I I start there and and that's also the moment where methadone is is introduced right it both like Mm -hmm. nationally there's a legislation that passed that um allowed for using uh opioids synthetic opioids to treat heroin addiction that had passed Mm -hmm. in in 1966 um and that was what was the treatment before then just like ride it out yeah oh before then what is novel about this is like before we had like therapeutic communities to treat addiction, like locally, um, addiction treatment and research was very, uh, centralized. So there was, uh, two hospitals that they would send people to, uh, one in Lexington, Kentucky. Um, and the the I thought you were, I thought you were saying in New Mexico. No, no, nationally, (laughs) just two hospitals and people like fly them out to, um, which was in, you know, Kentucky and, and, and Texas. And so, so would the state do this or yeah, would your so like, parents got, you, do normally this? Normally when they got like arrested, they're like prisoners or it was okay, voluntary so it's not... as well. And I, you know, because there were, you know, um, like elite people who also went to these, these uh, narcotic farms as they called them. Um, oh. And so they would send people out to one of these, these two hospitals, either through a court ordered or, or voluntary. And it was in those spaces that they were, um, uh, using methadone, but it was really used to like detoxify people. And the, the idea was, was drug free. And so methadone, sure. um, you know, in the, in the 1960s, mid 1960s was, uh, was introduced more so as a maintenance drug. So you, you would use it, um, you know, daily, uh, to kind of deal with the cravings and, uh, um, and, and it was also, it had a, like a social component too, right? It was, it was, it really wasn't, the state didn't really care about the health of people. It was mostly to stop crime. There was a lot of people who were using heroin. It's a, it's a shorter afterlife. So you keep having to fix. So yeah. in order to keep 
you know, to keep your, your high, to keep that, that maintenance, um, it was expensive. So people, it was often associated with crime. There was like petty theft and things like that. This is how they were, they were arresting and incarcerating people. So they introduced methadone really, um, or at least how they convinced the legislature in the U S to, to use this maintenance drug was like, this is going to solve the crime issue. Um, so it's not that it's safer. It's not that it's like more, it's not that it's, um, less likely because i had do you mean like less harmful to the human body yeah like it it it, it's it isn't necessarily that it's less likely to um cause an overdose because of like trickiness with or like it's um synthetic so you know exactly what's in it and so you you know that it's not contaminated or interfered with it's nothing it's not anything like that it's it's like it is something that like it's administered and therefore there's no um, like economic drivers to sort of put someone in a position to, um, you know, do, you know, you know, some kind of property crime to, in order to buy um, more. It's just like you go to the clinic and yeah. they in give a, it to you and a very you're not a problem. Way. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. It's, oh, wow. you know, it's, it's still a, an opioid, you know, and, and, um, you know, it's, it's not so much a substitute, it's just a maintenance, you know, in a, in a very controlled, uh, way you would go daily to methadone clinics. It's, it's changed now, but at that time, um, you know, some people still, I think go daily, but, uh, you would go daily to a specialist, right? You couldn't see a doctor. Was it actual like addiction specialist that you had to see at these clinics, um, to receive your methadone? Uh, but, Again, the idea, I guess, like the pharmacology is that it had a, a longer, like, half life. So you just have to go once a day instead of okay. having to find, you know, heroin every, you know, three or four hours. Um, so the, the actual um, person taking the methadone isn't the one that we're thinking of when we design this system. We're right. thinking of the person whose car would get broken yes. into. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and the like, the police officer has to file the report, right? Like that, that sort of like sort of the taxpayer. Right. Are we thinking about the taxpayer? Right. <laughs> and, like, is that who we're thinking right. about? <laughs> exactly, the taxpayer. Okay. And you know, not in. That's one way to look at it. And what I found in my research, you know, I, this group of people that are like, hmm, let's experiment with methadone, um, kind of saw it as like emancipatory. We could use this tool as a way to control in our communities, um, you know, crime for, you know, the rate of recovery or, uh, the experience of recovery, uh, uh, within our own community and kind of push the police out. Cause the idea was that if you qualify to be able to go, undergo treatment, it was an agreement with the U S surgeon general and the courts, um, that can suspend your, your, uh, your prison sentence. Or, um, my argument is it was kind of abolitionist on the part of, you know, the thinking of the, of the uh, the group that was, that was facing police brutality and discrimination was that we could use this tool in a way to, to control how recovery works. So it's, it's, it's like a hybrid technology, right? That it's both okay. control, like surveillance and controlling. And then on the other end, you know, in the hands of, of the people who need it, it's, it's, it's emancipatory too. So, <laughs> yeah. 
There are okay. many, many things yeah. that have that duality. Right, right. And, <laughs> yeah. and so that is something that is carried, that sort of spirit, sort of the, that sort of that, that interplay between um, surveillance and uh, control and emancipation and sort of agency. Is that that interplay something that is the, a through line um, through, you know, your 50-year um, sort of, I guess history of of this um, of this phenomenon, and then into your your work of the past several Present years. Of, <laughs> <Right>. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's and so that that comes through. Um, yeah. and and it I assume it changes, it evolves, right? Definitely, but changes still is there. And, yeah, right. You know, it, you know, Kibrad, the program that I'm talking about, who who used this technology towards emancipatory ends. You know, it only lasted. Um, at least in their control for, you know, um, at least institutionalized for a year. Before that, they met for at least three or so. Um, and then it got uh, appropriated by the university who who made a, a whole institution around, you know, uh, addiction recovery, you know. So, um, but I argue like that the the work that Kibrad did, you know, their their legacy is still within these these institutions, even though they are institutionalized and by, you know, um, biopolitical projects and, um, are very disciplinary. There's, it's, it's still in tension with, with, um, you know, the work that Kibrod did. Condensed takeaway that you wanted people to know about sort of, or that you hope that your, research sort of imparts to people and that you sort of want people to know about like as it connects to anthropology right because you have this very unique intersection of anthropology and sort of like care and um social organization and all of that so if somebody was listening who was thinking about a career in anthropology and wasn't sure sort of where that career could go, um, what would you want them to take away from this in terms of like how you use anthropology? Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that does make sense. Um, and I'll say two things. I think, uh, one, um, getting involved with uh, organizations uh, that interest you, uh, community organizations. It's really easy to volunteer um, with, you know, across many issues that might interest you. Uh, so for me, it was um, here in, in Arizona, you know, Sonoran Prevention Works. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I also work with this group called Transcript Pueblo uh, that, that, um, allows me to think about the intersections of, of uh, racial justice as well as gender justice and um, citizenship and um, uh, in really seeing what it is that the community is, is uh, you know, doing um, to make life better for themselves. Uh, so that's, that's one way that I like to think about bringing my research to these spaces that are already organized and, um, and doing the work. Uh, 
And, um, two is, uh, I think reading, you know, I, like I said, I was so moved by the ethnography, you know, that I had mentioned in the beginning, um, and really just thinking about the ethnographies that like really, that really sit with you and really move you, um, and what it is about those ethnographies that, that do that. Um, and those ones have always been like examples for me to, to, uh, to model, um, and inspirations. (laughs) Yeah, because I, something that I really just want to maybe excessively just sort of put a pin in is, is the idea of anthropology as service, because while any research can be sort of service to the discipline and, and enhance our knowledge of how people work and how lives in the past were and how lives in the present are now. It's been rare that we've sort of had someone whose focus is so that enmeshes community and service and scholarship so so completely and i just i want to really like highlight that because this is one of the reasons why we funded your research or at least your your uh, your travel your paper your yes. conference travel not yes, your research sorry, not your research <laughs> your research paper um yeah because because it had this tremendous sort of impact i don't mean impact factor like like a journal is that what I mean, Amber? What do I mean? No, yeah, you. That's something that is um, impactful. You, know, you, it's impactful, and also um, you uh, you articulated a very clear um, sort of uh, there was sort of a reflexivity. Like you, we we understood that this is a um, that you are not you're not studying people as though you have like a magnifying glass to them. I Um, say, what do we have here? uh, Yeah. It's something that like it is, it is both informed by and in service of sort of people asserting their own humanity and people, um, um, being involved in sort of, uh, the future that involves them like that that sort of it see includes that's them. what i meant this is how this works <laughs> i sort of stumble towards an idea and amber was it goes actually what you meant to say was this and like crystallizes it perfectly it's a good team <laughs> team effort but um but but yeah and that's something that uh you know in fairness to a lot of our interviewees they do work with people who have been dead for of course, uh, yeah. hundreds if not thousands that's, of years so can't save them <laughs> can't save but, them but uh but but it is something that is um, it's very it's very powerful work that that speaks to the capacity to um, not only um, sort of open people's eyes to sort of um, you know realities um, that they uh, may not have had an opportunity to witness or participate mm. in or would mm-hmm. uh, perhaps prefer not to or have very um, uh, uh, perhaps misinformed or differently informed uh, perceptions of. Informed by the uh, D.A.R.E. program, maybe? <laughs> yeah, but, but just sort of that, that sense of... <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. It was... It, it was um, Pervasive. It was a well-funded project, um, and and so just thinking about these things, these these ways in which um, uh, communities and um, you know categories of individual who um, wouldn't necessarily see themselves 
or someone that they would know, uh, sort of represented in liter in the literature, or if they do, they see um, something that feels kind of gross and unfamiliar to them, uh, that and like unrecognizable, I guess I should say. Um, and yeah, so so that and I have. Um, what, where, you know, we're kind of coming in for our landing, the little runway light, the little lights are on, like on the sides of the yeah, aisle. and you can feel um, the vibration <laughs> of the landing gear going through. Uh, so, um, we've been on planes. I, I have, I remember planes. Um, I have, um, I think, uh, one, one last question before our two questions that we ask everyone. Um, and you can feel free to use this as a springboard to, into anything else that you want to kind of discuss in this. Um, and that's um, in your years of, of working on this topic, um, what's something that has surprised you or what is something that was unexpected sort of moving from that, um, that, that kind of, being from a community, growing up in a community that is impacted by, um, you know, drug use and, and the various sort of uh, phenomena of kind of surveillance control, um, yeah. and um, and you know the the pathologizing um, sort of mm-hmm. acts that, that are that are done. Like, what what is something that surprised you? Sort of moving from that. Um, you know, non-scholar uh, that you were because you were a child, uh, but also <laughs> just sort of like uh, like moving from you know your youth and your pre mm-hmm. um, pre academic self and through your research, what's something that has um, surprised you mm-hmm. or um, fundamentally changed for you and how you view um, you yourself, these communities that yeah. you with whom you work, mm-hmm. um, or or just tell me a surprise. Yeah, um, that's a great question. I think it was a surprise to me to learn that you know substance use is something that touches us touches us all in some way. We all, you know, you carry Narcan. Someone knows someone who's overdosed, or someone knows you know, someone who's, who's used. And, um, you know, I think I came into the project thinking, you know, I shared my background with you that I, I, I come from a family and community that, um, uh, was heavily inundated with, with, um, like heroin and opioids. And I, and I thought for the longest time that I was, you know, the exception. And I think mm. going through these different places and, and studying in these, um, in these different spaces and talking to these people across like generations, um, I learned that, you know, it, it's, it's, um, you know, substance use is, is the rule and, and, um, it's, uh, something that I share with a lot of people. Um, and it's very much a part of our, uh, a part of all of us in some way. Uh, so I think that's, that's definitely one thing that, that has, um, surprised me about my research. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's really rewarding to be able to give this research then back to them to be like, look what you did, Mm -hmm. you know, or look at, um, look at where, you know, agency, um, not to make everything positive or good, look where agency kind of shows up in, in this space, um, has been quite rewarding. So. Yeah. Well, I, I think that there is, 
yeah, when I was sort of approaching this conversation we were going to have, I was thinking like, don't try to like make it all rosy at the end. Like, don't try to be like, ah, it's going to be fine. Um, because it's, that's not rea- like reality. It, it doesn't, doesn't, it doesn't work out that way. To everyone um, li- yeah. listening. Yeah. But there is, um, but there, there are these, I, you know, you've described moments of hope and of poignancy and of uh, connection and of being a part of something much greater. And, you know, you're, you're part of a sort of a, a tradition or a sort of a lineage of, of, of folks that are working in um, working on behalf of and along with um, folks that have a lot of people that are working against them and a lot of systems that are working against them. And, um, yeah. And I, I'd like to believe that, you know, the future involves people getting to live on their own terms, um, and whatever that means for them. And yeah. And I, I think even, you know, talking about this tension of, of hope and, um, affliction, you know, that, that is a central debate in anthropology, right? Like there's the anthropology of the good, um, uh, mm-hmm. which kind of challenges, you know, uh, that notion of, of, uh, the suffering, you know, the suffering slot that we're just putting people in the same frameworks to, to, to highlight their suffering, you know, when, when there's right. people have agency and they resist and they do things, um, in their worlds to make them better. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there's, there's space for that. And, um, yeah, well, should we hit our last two? Yeah, well, I just, ones? I first want to, I first want, these are oh, the yes, hardest sorry. questions of all. I first just want to ask, like, is there anything else that you'd like to share about, um, your, your work or your sort experience of your, at the conference? Since that's, well, I'd be mean, sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. If, if there's anything else that you want to speak to, if not, don't, don't worry about it. Um, but, but yeah, like this is a, a time for you to just share, like, um, imagine you were in a position where you could say whatever you wanted about your work to, um, several thousand people, um, at one time, um, roughly somewhere between 13 and 16,000. <laughs> so yeah, imagine hypothetically you had this opportunity. Um, is there, is there anything else that you'd like to share? Because there's so much more, uh, that we could talk about here and, um, and, and also please send us links to your work, uh, and, and anything like that, but just, yeah, anything you'd like to share, uh, with our listeners since you've, you've got them. Yeah. Um, you know, I guess if there was a, you know, anthropologists in, in the, uh, audience, young anthropologists that are trying to explore what, you know, uh, research trajectories they want to take. I, I think, um, uh, you know, be, uh, bold and, and, uh, you know, uh, push the envelope of what ethnography, um, uh, is and, um, really pursue things that are, uh, inspiring to you. Um, yeah, that's great. Yeah. And, um, thank you. And then was that your dog who also gave some advice? Yeah. Good. (laughs) I've actually had her since I started, she's nine. I've had her since she was uh, six weeks. So she's been with me through my entire PhD. So she probably has a lot to say. Yeah. 
Oh, I bet she does. The dog. <laughs> She's a dog toy. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I have. I've had my dog since I dropped out of my first PhD program. So. So okay, she's back in one. She's been she's, with you she's got to hang in there till 2033. So that's <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, now it's time for the hardest questions of all. Uh I have to remember what they are. What's the best thing about anthropology? Okay, yes. Um finally Anna's come around to it. So I had originally pitched it as what's the best thing and Anna's like, "Well, you should ask them what they think the best thing is." I was like, "There's no such thing as objectivity." <laughs> so <laughs> to you, what is the best thing about anthropology? Yeah. Um well, there are many things that are great about anthropology. Uh, I think but the best. The best. <laughs> I think for me it's the the disciplinary methods of, of ethnography, at least, you know, in cultural anthropology and, and kind of the fields that I, that I'm in, um, to be able to, uh, interact with people, um, you know, and, and to build these, uh, you know, mutual and long lasting relationships with the people you're, you're studying with, um, has been, you know, very transformative for, you know, my work obviously, but also for my life, I'm, I'm still in contact with the many people that I've, that I've interviewed like 10 years ago. <laughs> so I think building these, these relationships, um, you know, uh, anthropology is, is the discipline that introduced me to that. And I think part of that is because it's, it's gone through its, um, you know, the work of reflexivity, you know, what we talked about earlier, recognizing how, um, you know, how it, it started as a, as a discipline for, for empire and, and development and, and has had it done a lot of re- reflexive work to be like, Hey, what are these relationships that we're having with our interlocutors and what are the power imbalances and how do we think critically about how we, um, approach, uh, these questions and how we approach, uh, the people we want to include in our research. Um, and how do we, uh, do anthropology that's good. <laughs> so, yeah. um, I think for me, uh, anthropology has been, um, a space for me to think about all those things and to actually do, you know, put those theories into practice. So. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Anna, we will accept your answer. Mm, maybe the hardest one. I don't know. We've been told it's the hardest one. If you could be a fly on the wall or honestly, any species on any surface, um, for a moment in either the span of human history and prehistory or a specific moment in the discipline, what would you want to see? What would you want to be witness to? I think for me, maybe like the formation of like American anthropology, at least with like Boaz, you know, like kind of this question around, um, you know, the culture, the early culture debates, um, Mm -hmm. I think would be really interesting. Uh, um, you know, his, his reframing of, of, of culture from race. <laughs> uh, I think that political context would be, would be very interesting. Um, It'd be nice to walk up to him and just be like, but have you also considered <laughs> these things that aren't No, you're awful? not, a, you're a fly. You're not allowed to. No, 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 you're right. Have a, like a, I, no, and I'm glad no you contact. said that because <laughs> you're right because it's not, you know, it, it was only progressive on a like surface level, right? Like that's the argument that, you know, using culture instead of race without addressing the structural issues is just perpetuating the same stereotypes. So, um, 
you know, that, that legacy was so foundational that I, I think it would, to the discipline, that it'd be interesting to kind of be a part of, or at least hear those, those early, early conversations. And I mean, I guess I know we have. To, to, what, to hear if anybody would bring that up? That would be. <laughs> right. Would be oh, like that? Yeah. 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 Like, about? Excuse me. <laughs> yeah. No one in the room said that. Right, well, you don't right. know. Well, who was at, we the, don't know, who was at the table? <laughs> right. Like is, is also the question, you know, um, we've got this very insightful fine. fly over here. Yeah. <laughs> 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 mm, ethics. Yeah. yeah. You know, that's a, that's a great one. Yeah. Yeah. This is, we're just another one on the, another one on the pile of great uh, answers to yeah. a very hard question. Now, all I can think of, we, um, for day job, um, one of my coworkers wrote a character into a script whose name was Henry J. Flyman. And it is revealed that, you know, like later in the script that he is in fact just a billion flies in a trench coat. And now that's all I'm going to picture when we ask this question. It's just like some Henry J. Flyman in the corner, just going interesting. <laughs> Very different day jobs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, well, with that, I think um, my dog is giving me the well, meaningful look that says kibble soon, please. Well, um, Danielle, thank you so much for joining yes, us. Yes, thank you so um, much. And for doing the work that find you, do. you Are you on the internet? Are you Have online? you heard of it? <laughs> Have you heard of the internet? Um, <laughs> like, this is going to change everything. Yeah. <laughs> That's what they say. I mean. Try Twitter.com. <laughs> no, wait, don't. But... Do you have a Twitter.com? I, I do have a Twitter. That, okay. <laughs> um, it, would you like people to find you on it? Yeah, we sure. Can in our show notes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, please. Uh, I would have to double check to see what my handle is, but I think it's D Cabela. We'll, we'll link it in the okay, show notes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you can tell us what it is later. Okay. Great. Yeah. And we'll have, um, we will have links to the ethnographies and oh, any great. articles yeah. and um, any of their work that you, that, that, that you want to send us. We'll throw it up there online. Um, and uh, thank you so much. Thank you so much for sharing your, your work with us. Mm-hmm. Um, thank you so much for um, really setting a great precedent for the past the mics to come. Mm. Um, and, um, and, um, good luck, break a leg, whatever isn't unlucky, mm. um, mm-hmm. regarding, um, your dissertation defense that's coming up. Oh, you're going to smash it out of the park. Yeah. Well, thank you. And every so confidence. We're going to edit this together and you can present it to your committee. <laughs> right. and, say, like, yeah, and then just, just walk pass. away. Doctor is please. Press play on the. Yeah, just put it on. We should stop before I. Okay, well, Anna has it. to go to bed. Um, <laughs> Grandpa needs needs to go to bed. Yep. Yeah.